Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. Today, we are releasing from the Carrigan Street Vault, a podcast that Professor Carrick originally recorded in 2010 on neurology applications for chiropractic towards posture and gait. We hope you enjoy the show. The field of neurology is very diverse. It covers a broad spectrum of conditions, diseases, applications, and treatment. For chiropractors, neurology is historically associated with the first adjustment to present day types of applications. So today we're going to be talking about the neurological applications of chiropractors specific for posture and gait. When we talk about these individual conditions that involve the juxtapositional relationships of joints, vertebrae, legs, arms, neck, head, all of these things together, we think of stabilizing mechanisms which exert an inhibitory influence on movement or that facilitate movement. So what do chiropractors need to understand so that they can serve humankind at a higher level? First of all, we need to understand what the basal ganglia does because the basal ganglia is very central in activities of human motion. When we think of motion in vertebrae, we think of movement that can be excessive or hyperkinetic. This is the hypermobility of a joint movement segment, or we think of a hypomobility or a joint fixation, which is an akinetic type of motion activity. All of these are really served by the functional integration of the basal ganglia. Now, a lot of the names of neurological structures in the brain or central nervous system and peripheral nervous system are complex for those that are not fluent in the language. But realistically, these are simply names. There are certain loops which will assist humankind in movement and assist humankind in stabilizing so that they might be able to initiate a movement. So the relationships of posture and gait are very well known to the chiropractor who oftentimes is the world expert in this area. So the functional role of posture may be the function served by one of the pathways of the basal ganglia. And just for review for you, there are two major pathways of the basal ganglia. One is direct, one is indirect. When we say direct, we mean it goes to a uh, short area of integration very quickly. The indirect one goes a little bit longer. So what happens in regards to these pathways? Basically, when we look at activity of the human brain, the frontal lobe, the area that gives you that imaginatory wealth, that gives you the ability to know purpose, intellect, all of these things that separate us from the beasts of the fields, that frontal lobe is integral in all human movement and stance and integral in allowing the joint position of your vertebrae to be in the position that they are. We can talk about the subluxation complex or joint position error, but I think we all understand that there are aberrations in the juxtapositional relationships of the vertebrae of all of humankind. When we talk about about our patient populations, we have a very rich history of affecting these types of concomitants. So the frontal lobe is going to fire to an area deep in the brain referred to as the striatum. And this striatum is a wonderful area that integrates and causes gating of the thalamus. So the frontal lobe fires to the striatum and the striatum fires to the pallidum and the pallidum fires to the thalamus. But this firing is not 
excitatory or inhibitory. It's a combination of both. So here's how it works. If you can imagine the front of your brain, it fires into your striatum and it excites it. And when this area is incited, it in turn inhibits another area of the brain. The direct pathway that is inhibited is such that its area also inhibits the thalamus. So the frontal lobe excites an area that inhibits an area that inhibits the thalamus. So if you look at this type of loop, almost like a football game, where you're going to have a quarterback who's exciting, he's going to throw the ball, and he throws the ball, but then we have somebody who is going to inhibit somebody catching that ball. So the frontal lobe excites the striatum, and then the striatum is going to inhibit another area of the brain. But the area that it inhibits itself is inhibitory. When you inhibit inhibition, you allow activation of an individual pathway. So if you have somebody with a football and you have a blocker trying to inhibit that person, if the blocker is successful in inhibiting that person, then the target that the person would be throwing to would not receive the ball. So inhibition of that function would result in decreased uh, consequences of the individual function. But if the function of that system is to tackle another uh, player, that inhibition of that person would decrease the ability of that person to tackle the other person. So this is how the direct pathway of the basal ganglia works. The frontal lobe excites the striatum, which inhibits the globus pallidus pars interna, which inhibits the thalamus. So the globus pallidus, part of the basal ganglia, the pars interna, big names, inhibit the thalamus, but they are inhibited by the striatum, which is excited by the brain. This direct pathway is rather simple, and these frontal executive functions are so marvelously linked that they uh, gate the thalamic activation of the sensory motor strip that governs the movement in your body parts so that the information from the environment that would allow you to stand up, to sit down, to move, to walk, to know where you are in space is actually gated by the brain. So that's the direct pathway. The indirect pathway is a little more complex. When we look at complexity, the more stops there are, the greater the probability of having pathology. Or to say it differently, if you check your bags in at the airport, and your bags are going to a direct stop, uh, the chances of losing the bags is not that great. But if you've got multiple connections and they've got to transfer your bags, that's usually where the problems come about. And in humankind, we largely have problems in the indirect pathway of the basal ganglia that affect our posture and result in different movement disorders, dystonias, things like torticollis, uh, spasms in your back, and other types of activities. Well, the indirect pathway is a little more complex, but basically the frontal lobe excites that striatum again, and this striatum now inhibits a part of the globus pallidus, the external portion, and that external portion of the globus pallidus inhibits the subthalamic nucleus. So we look at the activity that every time the striatum inhibits any part of the globus pallidus, the globus pallidus function is to inhibit another structure. In the direct pathway, the globus pallidus inhibits the thalamus. In the indirect pathway, the globus pallidus 
inhibits the subthalamic nucleus. So when the frontal lobe excites the striatum, it excites an inhibition of the globus pallidus. The function of the globus pallidus is to inhibit other function. The direct pathway from the cortex is such that the striatum is, striatum is excited and that inhibits the globus pallidus pars interna and the globus pallidus pars interna. We know it inhibits. It inhibits the thalamic activation of the sensory motor area of humankind. In the indirect pathway, the frontal lobe excites the striatum, which inhibits the globus pallidus pars externa, and this inhibits the subthalamic nucleus, and the subthalamic nucleus does something else. It excites the substantia nigra. So when the frontal lobe excites the striatum, and when that striatum inhibits the globus pallidus pars externa, it's going to inhibit the inhibition of the subthalamic nucleus. So the subthalamic nucleus excites the substantia nigra. If it is inhibited, the substantia nigra is not excited as much as it normally would be. If, however, it, uh, if the inhibition to the subthalamic nucleus is decreased, then the substantia nigra is activated at a greater rate. The function of the substantia nigra is exactly the same as the globus pallidus. It inhibits the thalamus. So when we look at the stabilizing mechanisms of humankind, we find that the, uh, the basis of individual movement and problems is modulated by the basal ganglia, and this modulation is really thought to be a balance of excitation and inhibition of competing motor programs. When you see a patient that has a muscle spasm or a joint posturing or a tremor, something has gone awry in the functionality of the basal ganglia. And we know that when we look at different movement disorders, we realize that they can reflect excessive function or decreased function of one or more components of the brain postural system. If you are a chiropractor and you deal with angulation of joints, muscle activity, stabilization, then you must understand how this system works so that you can do things that would change that functionality. Well, we do know that the area of the striatum that is associated in this frontal lobe striatal activity, and the names of the striatum are fairly simple. These are the putamen and the caudate nucleus. But this striatum also is an area that receives activation from the midbrain, from the tegmentum of the midbrain. It's a very rich dopaminergic area, and it is excited when you move your arms or legs or when joints are moved appropriately. That is to say, when the joints in your neck can move well, or the joints in your arms and legs can move well, they're going to fire into the spinal cord and up the neuraxes, where they're going to evoke potentials in the cerebellum, which activates that midbrain, which activates the striatum and the cortex, and this whole loop continues. When you've got a joint fixation or you have too much movement in the joint, then we have aberrations in that frequency of activation of the brain, and conversely, we have aberrations in the amount of inhibition of the palatal output, which means to say that we modulate the inhibition of inhibition of the thalamus through the direct and indirect pathway, and this has some profound consequences that we see clinically 
in regards to uh, motor uh, systems. We know that the forms of postural control are dynamic rather than static, and we know that hyperkinetic types of movements, such as you see with increased movements of joints in the vertebral column, or increased movement of limbs, that this is going to reflect excessive function of very dynamic postures rather than being abnormal movements. So we have to look at vertebral positioning as a dynamic function, not as an abnormal position. We know that the range of the functional roles that are served by this functional postural system includes the control of movement of all joints, including vertebral uh, joints. We also uh, realize that the direct control of the movement is such that the body stabilization as a component of a neurological system can give us a range of mechanical means of implementing stabilization, which would include the co-contraction of antagonistic muscles as well as muscles that uh, are agonists uh, for themselves. And this can give us an entire range of functionality that we can see in all of the aspects of humankind. So let's look in detail at the components of posture and gait that we can see for clinical purposes to be associated with things that we find are very interesting in our patient populations and can give us a clinical uh, opinion. It's pretty obvious that on an audio recording, it's difficult to imagine these pathways unless you have a little bit of an atlas. And we would suggest that you look at a diagram that would give you uh, the basal ganglia and then listen to this uh, share and I think you'll be able to understand it a little bit more. When we look at posture and gait, we realize that it is uh, one of the most complex motor skills that we have. That is to say, to be able to stand up straight, to elicit these curves in our spinal musculature and to have appropriate functioning of our limb joints is integral. We know that walking is among the first motor skills of humankind. It's very, very complex. And it's a skill that is constantly modified. It's changed throughout our entire lifespan such that the movement that we see is really an interplay between automatic control of posture and walking, which is reflexogenic, as well as the volitional control of these individual motor acts. We know that complex motor patterns are possible in humankind, and we know that the uh, patterns that we see when people stand or walk are very, very distinctly individual. In fact, they are the fingerprints of individuality, and they are such that when we find aberrancies or disturbances of gait and posture, whether they be a, a lesser curve in a neck or a back or an increased curve or aberrational aspects of tonus in the limbs, that these are produced by neurological disorders and diseases. In fact, we know that any lesion in the nervous system can be identified by gait and posture or changes in muscle tone. We know this to be true when we look at activities of uh, chiropractic practice where some practitioners might look at a leg length, for instance, to ascertain some guidance or some differential in regards to their uh, treatment. We know that in order to walk, you've got to be stable and you've got to be upright. We know that kids have to be stable in an upright position before they can walk and that the stability 
that we see or the biomechanical attitudes that chiropractors are very, very skilled to understand is really dependent upon the linkages between the trunk, the core musculature, your vertebral system, as well as your locomotor system. We know that we need to have a dynamic equilibrium during walking, and that equilibrium is dependent upon integrating activity from your labyrinthine semicircular canals of your vestibular system, the information from joint position senses, the activity of feed-forward activity from the brain, the copying mechanism to the cerebellum, and a whole load of complexity that allows us some synergy of motor actions that are maintained by coordinated synergies of the strategies between uh, axial and proximal limb contractions. Well, certainly we realize that in the chiropractic world that this is a very, very complex system. It is a system that is wonderful. It is a system that is dependent upon automatic writing reflexes that mandate that the head must be maintained in an upright type of position. And when the head is maintained in an upright position, it must be supported by anti-gravity muscle tone. And this anti-gravity muscle tone is the tonus that chiropractors are very skilled to be able to examine and to treat in regards to the activity of the spinal uh, musculatures. Well, when we look at the activity of these anti-gravity muscles, which you can really consider to be spinal muscles, we have different types of postural re responses. Some are anticipatory and some are reactive. The anticipatory postural responses are dependent upon what's happening in your brain, and these must happen before the limb movement itself. This is like the on your mark, get set, go of a race. So these are the feed forward mechanisms and the feed forward mechanisms of brain are compared to the integration of information from your labyrinthine system, from your joint mechanoreceptors, from your muscle spindle uh, system that allow you to know where your limbs are. And this limb knowledge is really a feedback system. So we have a feed forward system and a feedback system. And the feedback system allows us to react to perturbations in our world, whether it be a, a tiny crack on a sidewalk or whether it be a stick in the road that you've got to walk over. So the anticipatory postural responses are going to allow us to compensate and compare to feedback mechanisms that will allow us to control our movements to uh, to assist in posture. Now, we have different reflexogenic types of things. For instance, if you think that you're, you're going to fall over to one side or the other, you're going to have activity of muscles that would prevent that individual fall. Or let's say it a little bit differently. If you've got hypotonia on one side of your body or hypotonia on certain muscles in one limb, then the individual is going to have to stretch that individual muscle to a greater extent than the muscle on the other side in order to get the same sort of information from it to the brain. So when we look at these activities of stability, we find that we're going to have different movements and different contractions of muscles in regards to what we consider to be protective. What does this mean? It means to say that if you've got a hemispheristic type of pattern 
of motor strength. One side of your body, for instance, is not as strong as the other. You're going to find, when looking at the legs, if your left leg has got lesser tone than your right leg, then you're going to be shifting more to the right than to the left. When you shift to the left, the increased tone in the right side gives a greater feedback and will allow you to contract from that deviation and stabilize it, whereas the decreased tone on the left side would allow and promote a greater deviation to the right side and give you a probability that you might exceed your limits of stability. You may be ready to have a fall or an individual injury, or you may twist a joint or do a variety of other sorts of things. So we need to understand that we'll have protective reactions if somebody is hypotony on the left side and they feel in their brain that they're going to be falling to the right side, then they're going to have movements of their arms or their legs or their head or their neck in a protective posturing that may be maintained even though they're not falling. So we need to understand the relationship of sensory integration and posture. The sensory system is such that all of the things that you can see that you can hear, that you can sense through your vestibular system, that you can perceive from your proprioceptive system, will be integrated and compared such that we have some aspect of redundancy. But each system is not equal to the other. For instance, when we look at the vestibular system, the information from the vestibular system is really dependent upon the activation of the canal systems in bony labyrinths. Well, these canal systems in a book are located exactly at 90 degrees to each other so that individuals will be able to sense all types of translational movements as well as uh, angular movements of their head and neck. But in reality, the bony architecture is not exactly at 90 degrees. We're humans. We're wonderfully different and beautiful. So as a consequence, one side may not be exactly aligned as the other side, and you're going to have to have a head tilt or a compensation to decrease the sensory difference in that system. But that compensation of a head tilt or a twist or a turn of your neck is such that that information now gives you a different activity of feed back uh, to the brain from proprioceptors that are not recording the same amount of tone or muscle function from one side of the neck or the back uh, to the other. As a consequence, we're going to have an environmental reality of where your head is uh, in compared to where your vestibular system thinks it is and where your visual system thinks it is and what your perceived reality is. We know that individuals will shift away from a sound image. A sound image is where you perceive a sound is coming from. Well, chiropractors are born in the reality of Harvey Lillard. If someone has got a little bit of less hearing on their left ear, they're going to perceive that sound that is coming straight in front of them is coming more to the right of them because the right ear is going to hear it a little bit better and they're going to have a shift to the left uh, rather than the right side because of the mechanism of reflexes of sound imagery, which means to say that their sound image is going to result in different proprioceptive feedback because of contraction of muscles that would move the person away from the sound image, giving a feed forward effect to the brain, 
which may be different than what the labyrinthine system and the visual system is seeing. So we do definitely have a discrepancy between the reality of where the person is in space and where he or she perceives that they actually are. And this type of conflict can be uh, associated with a variety of pathological processes, of breakdown of joints because of mechanical uh, attitudes and uh, wear and tear, if you would, on the individual joint itself, necessitating a visit to the chiropractor. Well, when these things happen, it's very important for the chiropractor to be able to address the needs of the patient and look at them in a modern uh, type of world, uh, which would allow all of us to be able to affect the brain in matters that we uh, can do, utilizing brain-based neurological effects, which are very, very important in the treatment of difficult types of conditions. We know that movement and walking is dependent upon the stability of uh, the trunk, the orientation of this vertebral column, its frequency of activation, and that moving and walking is dependent upon an upright stance, and that walking cannot occur if you're not stable, so that we're going to see gait disturbances if individuals have any spinal uh, problems whatsoever. And this is, of course, uh, neurology. We know in chiropractor, uh, chiropractic uh, literature and in techniques that biomechanics are very important for us, and we can understand the gait cycles of stance, swing, and step with different biomechanical patterns, which will shift the center of pressure beneath our feet in, in order to initiate gait. Whole body response with posturography is really the gold standard in uh, neurological examinations to date, where individuals will realize that problems in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system are always manifested in aberrations of motor tonus, strength, and postural reality. Chiropractors have known this since the beginning of the profession, where they were able to sense uh, by palpation and observation different angulations of joints and different patterns, whether it be a short leg or a short arm or a low ear or a shifting of a chin, and they were able to stimulate those joints with a manipulation or a chiropractic adjustment and find that the leg length would change or an angulation might be able to change. This is very, very important when we look at gait uh, parameters because individuals uh, must be stable before they can walk with ultimate beauty of humanism. Gait starts with a shift of the center of pressure of your whole body posteriorly. When you're standing up, individuals may have different postures. For instance, an individual whose brain senses that they have a posterior center of pressure means to say that they feel that they're falling back, even if they're not. For instance, a Parkinsonian patient or a patient with supranuclear palsy develops a flexed posture because they perceive that they're falling backwards. So they adopt a flexed posture to attempt to shift their center of pressure anteriorly. And we have different center of pressures for virtually every disease known to humankind. It's important for the chiropractor to be able to understand what they are. For instance, if somebody has an extension subluxation of their occiput 
on their atlas, that individual labyrinthine system will be sensing a more posterior uh, sense than if there was a flexion, a subluxation of the same types of joints. As a consequence, the individual who has that type of bony adaptation is going to have different strategies in her legs, her feet, uh, or his legs, her feet, or his or her thighs, or forearms, etc., etc., to compensate for perceived environmental event, even though in reality, they may be bent forward if they have these labyrinthine changes or portions or, or, or bony placements that can compromise them, they are going to have a different center of pressure. So we know that in order to walk, you need to shift that center of pressure posteriorly. If you have a anterior center of pressure, it's going to take you longer to initiate gait because you got to shift it posteriorly. And therefore, we have different types of latencies or an increased time to initiate gait. This is very, very important when we measure uh, different gait patterns in individuals. Can they, can they start to walk? Is there freezing, such as in the Parkinsonian patient? Is there shuffling, uh, et cetera, et cetera? We know the center of pressure should continue to shift towards the stance foot to promote the ability of a forward swing phase of the stepping foot. This is so very, very important for us to understand because it gives us some uh, really, really great information that will allow us to serve humankind uh, at a markedly higher uh, level. We need to understand neuroanatomy when we talk about gait. Unfortunately, it's poorly understood in humans and largely based upon animal uh, studies. But there are two basic anatomical systems which we know to be involved in gait in humans, and these are in the brainstem locomotor centers and in the spinal locomotor centers. So in order to induce stepping, we need to activate pathways that are located in the ventral medial descending system. Now the ventral medial descending brainstem pathways are the pathways that evoke activity of muscles in your spinal column. It is different than the system that activates the uh, voluntary uh, components of arms and legs. This is the system that evokes spinal stability, and spinal stability is a necessary integrity before you can take a step. Or to say it differently, people with gait aberrations have neurological problems that really necessitates a visit to a trained chiropractor so that he or she might be able to facilitate activation of brain activity, which will change the frequency of activation of both the reticulospinal and vestibulospinal projections in the ventral medial descending brainstem pathways. These are the pathways that will activate uh, interneurons in the spinal cord. These are the interneurons that activate the uh, spinal muscles and the limb muscles to evoke uh, central walking uh, patterns and enable us to maintain and coordinate a rhythmic stepping uh, type of movement. They are the ones that allow us to link the hind limb, the forelimb, and the trunk networks to facilitate a coordination uh, between individual uh, limbs themselves. 
the ventromedial brainstem motor pathways are so important for chiropractic. These pathways also are the shared pathways that activate the autonomic nervous system. So there is no wonder why most chiropractic patients uh, that present might have aberrations in their autonomic system that can be sensed, for instance, with a neural kilometer or heat changes as a consequence of different activation of the uh, arterioles to skin uh, and different sweat, etc., etc. Well, in humankind, we know that the brainstem and higher cortical connections are necessary to walk upright. And when there's aberrations in the integration of brain or brainstem, uh, then we're going to have problems with walking and stance. We know that falls are the greatest cause of death, uh, not only in the elderly, across all uh, ages, except for the ages of about 16 to 21, where kids can uh, die as a consequence of automobile accidents. But other than that, the largest accidental cause of death is is from falls. And the largest consequence of falls is an aberration in basal ganglionic integration of these thalamic activations of the postural system. We know that the supraspinal centers in the basal ganglia and frontal cortex uh, will signal us when to start and stop walking. They'll give us the speed of locomotion and the size and direction of steps. So when we examine people, we need to, to understand these individual gait patterns, and they're very, very uh, complex. We know that spinal locomotor activity can be modified when there's aberrations in basal ganglionic activation of the brain through aberrant gating activities. We know that in humankind, we have the integration of the frontal cortical activity with the motor circuits through the basal ganglia. And this is the basal ganglia that we talked about uh, before, that the sequence of rhythmic stepping is so very important. Chiropractors love the cerebellum, and largely because every time you move a joint, you have activation of cerebellar output neurons. So what happens is, is that the tonus of muscle reflects the integrity of the entire neurological system. You know that cerebellar lesions result in generalized hypotonia, or to say it differently, a decreased tone decreases its activation of the cerebellum. It's a vicious type of cycle. So the cerebellum is very integral in a variety of activity from the movement of your eyes to reflexogenic activation of the muscles that move uh, the vertebrae in your spinal column. But they also are such that cerebellar output and input is integral in modulating the rhythm, the rate, the amplitude, and the force of all movements in the entire body. It modifies the uh, the brain activity associating with motor commands. We know that the feedback from all of your proprioceptors, your joint position sensors, your muscle spindums go to the cerebellum. We know that when you want to initiate a motor command, that we've got 40 times that amount of signaling is integrated into the cerebellum and compared to the information that comes from individual joints. So we have efferent copy, feed forward, and feedback uh, types of effects. We know that uh, a partner with the cerebellum is the brainstem, and that the brainstem is very, very integral in maintaining the postural writing responses that keep you 
upright in the Earth's gravitational field. We know that the brainstem is integral in axial extensor tone and equilibrium. Chiropractors are very skilled in, in motor testing, probably better than anybody else. So when you look at your muscle testing, you find patterns of muscle weaknesses. What are the anterior muscle strengths compared to the posterior muscle strength? What is the tone of the anterior musculature compared to the posterior musculature? We say that a uh, hemispheristic uh, distribution of motor weakness uh, referred to as a pyramidal paresis is such that the extensors in the upper extremity can become weak, whereas the flexors in the lower extremity can become weak. To say it differently, if you imagine someone that's had a stroke, you'll see that the right arm is going to be flexed upwards and the leg is going to be extended uh, and the foot is going to be inverted so that the muscles that would oppose those activities become weak. So what do you see with soft lesions? You see weakness of finger extensors, elbow extensors, shoulder abductors, external rotators of a shoulder. In the lower extremity, of course, you're going to see other types of concomitants with weakness of extension of the, uh, of the individual foot, weakness of foot everters. And when we look at this type of weakness, weaknesses of knee extensors, these patterns are pyramidal distributions which tell us that something has gone wrong in that brainstem basal ganglionic regulatory system. Of course, if you give an adjustment into the nervous system, regardless of the segmental level, you can examine that motor strength after the adjustment and ascertain whether that adjustment was in harmony with increasing the consequences of integrity of that individual person or whether it was not. We know that changes of the uh, medial brainstem integration can result in disequilibrium, which would give us a change in the activation of the proximal and axial muscles uh, that is associated with decreased or aberrant frequencies of firing of the descending reticulospinal, vestibulospinal, and tectospinal systems. And we need to talk about these systems because they are integral in a variety of the therapies that we might be able to utilize in our treatment of humankind. When we look at chiropractic activations, we tend to look at the structural, structural and functional relationships of uh, the vertebral column uh, in contrast with the arms and the limbs. We know that functional changes in brain activity, whether they be cognitive in nature, whether they be perceptual in nature, or whether they be environmentally true, uh, are really windowed with activation of uh, motor pathways that are associated with different angulations of joints. So whether a vertebral segment is moving too much or too low, whether it is fixated or whether it's hypermobile, there is indications that something is going a little bit awry in the basal ganglionic pathways, and then we can look at different treatment parameters. But all treatment parameters are depending upon our knowledge of the system and how to measure it and how to make a consequential change. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on kerriginstitute.com.